But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. You may be seated. Well, good morning and welcome to Disciples Church. It is so good to see you. Good to be with you. I'm reminded uh, as we sing songs like we sang this morning in Christ alone and being reminded of God's providence, his hand, his care, his compassion toward us from life's first cry to final breath, he commands my destiny. So we're coming in this morning with a busy week, a lot of things going on, all kinds of different distractions. Uh, some people had a great week, some people had a terrible week, but we come together in this time with a reminder that the Holy Spirit who guides us and who loves us, who indwells us, is with us, uh, as we said in our confession of faith, both to convict and to comfort. A dual-sided nature of what the Holy Spirit does in our lives for his people, that he loves us that much. And so that's the hope that we have as we gather today. So, so glad that you're here, glad that you made it out this morning. My name is Jonathan Mosier, I'm one of the pastors uh, and with that, would you please turn to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. Well, last summer, my family uh, and I went out to visit with my wife's grandparents. They live on a farm in Iowa. They've lived there for a lot of years, and it's just a really magical place um, for our family for a whole lot of reasons. Um, for years, Jessica's grandfather was an auctioneer, um, and so along the way, he had picked up all kinds uh, of different uh, unique antiques. He has this motley assortment of old playground on the equipment, and when I say old, what I mean is 1940s era steel and iron death trap style playground equipment. Like that's the sort of thing we're talking about, the sort of thing that you look at and wonder how any responsible adult could have ever thought was a good idea to construct for young children who are not particularly coordinated. And so my kids and their cousins were, were taking their lives into their hands, going down steel slides that had no substantial rails to speak of. In fact, no rails at all, potentially, even if my memory is correct, uh, and hanging on to this unanchored metal merry-go-round that went entirely too fast. Uh, at least for my liking, but they were having a great time with it. But for me, the highlight of playing on that equipment was getting onto this ancient teeter-totter, or seesaw if you prefer, and seeing how many of the kids it took to balance me out on the other side of the teeter-totter. And just as a spoiler, we didn't have enough kids to make that happen, all right? That was, that was too heavy. But I would jump up 
And as I jumped up, the kids would slowly kind of drift down to their side. But as soon as I hit the peak of my jump, which isn't very high, fortunately for them, I, my weight would come crashing down on my side and the kids would nearly catapult off the top of it. And so we did this back and forth and everybody had fun and nobody other than me was injured when the next day I could hardly walk because my legs were so sore and so tired. But in chapter 5, Paul describes the spiritual equivalent of that experience. That the temptation of the Christian is to leap and crash between these two spiritual extremes. That there is this spiritual seesaw that we are tempted to climb onto where we are constantly vacillating between law and indulgence. Law and indulgence. A religious desire to earn for ourselves what ultimately only God can provide and upon realizing that we are unable to earn those things, we indulge in sin, we indulge in gratification of the flesh as a means of self-medication, as a means of trying to make ourselves feel better. And in chapter 5, Paul is addressing how we as Christians are tempted to abandon the freedom that we've been given in Christ and run back to slavery. And the spiritual seesaw that we see in chapters, chapters 1 through 4 in dealing with the law and in chapter 5 in dealing with sin is really this two, these two different forms of slavery. Slavery to the law and slavery to sin. Indulgence in the flesh or religious obedience to the law. And the irony of those two forms of slavery is that obedience to one makes you think that freedom is found in the other. And here's what I mean. If you spend your life trying to earn your standing before God and uh, observing what, the, what religious teachings say and trying to observe the law and trying to do all of these things in your own flesh, you will inevitably look at the actions of the flesh, at the works of the flesh, at, the, at, at physical indulgence that's described in these texts, and you will look at it longingly, feeling like there is something good being kept away from you. And simultaneously, if you're struggling in your life with all kinds of various sin and you feel dominated by that sin, your temptation might be to look to that religious observance of the law and thinking that if you could just get your act together, you could find freedom. And back and forth on the spiritual teeter-totter we go. But Paul's invitation into freedom and safety is to get off the teeter-totter. He explained in chapters 1 through 4 how we're set free from the slavery of the law. And now in chapter 5, he's explaining how we're set free from the slavery to sin. And here's what he says, beginning in verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So Paul says here in this text, if you are in Christ, there is a conflict, a war internally that you're going to be experiencing between flesh and the Spirit. And just to, just to put a little bit of meat around what he's talking about there, when he's referencing the Spirit here, he's not just talking about your soul. He's talking about the Holy Spirit that indwells you, that there is a conflict that's happening internally between the desires of your flesh and the Spirit. So just to be clear, the Bible here is not promoting some sort of Gnosticism. 
What Gnosticism taught is that the physical world as we experience, that the material world in which we live is inherently sinful and inherently broken, that everything that we do in the body is sinful, and therefore, because it is sinful, it doesn't actually count. What you experience physically doesn't matter. The only thing that mattered was was what was going on spiritually. That's not here what the Bible is promoting. And we know that because it's God himself who created the physical world. It's God who, in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, the description that we're given, creates everything that we see. He gave us our physical bodies. He gave us even our physical appetites. He gave us work. He gave us pleasure. Everything that we find in creation before the fall of man was exactly how God had intended things to be, and it included the physical creation of the world. He did all of that in order that our affections could be stirred for him. And that is the experience that we have when we're in Christ. We can sit down and enjoy a good meal and a glass of wine and the friendship of others and the relationship within the context of a marriage and our actual soul can be stirred with affection for Christ because all of of those things that we're able to enjoy don't terminate on themselves. They point uh, point us to something much greater that we find in Christ. But what Paul is saying here is summed up well by one commentator where he's describing this distinction between the flesh and the spirit. And according to this commentator, the flesh in this text is not referring to our physical nature as opposed to our spiritual nature, but to the sin-desiring aspect of our whole being as opposed to the God-desiring aspect. The flesh, in other words, is our sinful heart. In other words, Paul here is using the word flesh to describe the sinful desires and the sinful temptations that we still experience as Christians. And it's this concept that led Martin Luther to describe the Christian as simul justus et peccator, simultaneously saint and sinner. It was Luther's construction for how to explain the Christian experience. How is it that we can be called saints of God, that we can be beloved and accepted and adopted children of the Most High and yet continue to struggle with sin in our lives? Well, it's because in this state in which we find ourselves, where we're still living in the midst of a broken world as broken people, even though we have positional righteousness and acceptance, perfect acceptance in the eyes of God because of Jesus Christ, There is still something about our flesh, that sin-desiring aspect of our being, that exists. And the hope of the Christian, our expectation as believers, is that these two forces are not equal in our lives. In other words, your desire to sin or your struggle with sin, even as a Christian, does not match up to the power and the strength of the Holy Spirit that indwells you. These are not equal forces fighting for dominance in your life. When the Holy Spirit indwells you as a believer in Jesus Christ, he has infinitely greater power than all of the temptations and all of the sins with which you might struggle. But our temptation is always to return to the familiar. It's always to return to what comes most naturally to us. And so what Paul is describing in this text is the process of sanctification. 
If you remember that terminology, we talked for for, uh, several weeks about the idea of justification, which is the idea that because Jesus Christ has died for you on the cross and taken the penalty for your sin on his own body, and because he rose from the dead, you were declared justified, just as if you had never sinned at all. That when God looks at you as a believer in Jesus Christ, he doesn't see your sins and your failures and your flaws. What he sees is the absolute perfection of his own son. That's what justification is. And sanctification is what happens as our lives begin to reflect more and more the new identity that God has already granted us. So in the words of one theologian, sanctification is simply the art of getting used to your justification. It's that your your being, who you are, begins to reflect who God has already declared you to be. And so in this description now, Paul's going to define what the works of the flesh are versus the fruit of the Spirit. And we're going to work through these kind of chunk by chunk. He begins in verse 19 saying this, Now the works of the flesh are evident. In other words, these are things we can all agree upon. Almost anybody can look at this list and recognize in them the flaws that are inherent. And he begins to work through these various sins. He starts with sins against oneself sins against oneself, and here's what he says they are, verse 19, sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. Now, those words are all related. They all reference sexual appetites, physical appetites. They're related, but they're not exactly the same. That word sexual immorality comes from the the, the Greek word uh, that is translated fornication. It's a junk drawer term for all kinds of sexual sin, particularly sex outside of the bonds of marriage. Impurity references the lifestyle that one lives that is not in recognition of God, but instead serves our own physical appetites above all else. And sensuality is the idea that we care more about the physical, sensual experience of this world than we do what's going on spiritually. So why in the world do I call this sins against oneself? Well, I pull that from Romans chapter 6, in which Paul says this, flee from sexual immorality, Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. In other words, what he's saying is there is a deleterious internal effect when we engage in sexual sin. The person that you hurt most, though you may hurt many others along the way, the person that you hurt most when you engage in sexual sin is you. It's something that affects you on a deep, real level, that sexual sin strikes at the heart of your self-worth. It's an abuse of how God created us to function. It alters the way that we view other people. It changes our perspective and our lens. It turns people into objects to be used rather than individuals to be valued. And on top of all of that, it impacts and damages your relationships. And anybody who's experienced sexual infidelity or other sexual sins within the context of a marriage can speak to how deeply that pain hurts. But he doesn't just stop there with sins against oneself. He then talks about sins against God. Verse 20, idolatry and sorcery. Idolatry is relatively obvious to us. It's a relatively explicit sin. It's the idea that I'm going to worship anything other than the one true creator God of the universe. But then There's this word sorcery, which is an unusual one for us, at least in a modern context. And all it means is this. It's tampering with the powers of evil, according to one theologian. 
This is anything that smacks of spiritualism, divining, interacting with spirits, interacting with the dead, fortune-telling, psychics, card-reading, all of those sorts of things in which you are trying to stumble upon or discover something unknown or interact with unknown beings. There is a darkness inherent with that. You are messing with evil. And Paul says this can't be something that marks our lives. Continues with sins against others, continuing in verse 20. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. Now, this was a particularly necessary reminder for this church because all sorts of division had begun to creep in. These people who claimed to know and love Jesus Christ were now marked by their by their hatred for one another within the context of the church. And there was all sorts of jealousy and all sorts of envy, not just of the lifestyles that certain people lived or perhaps the privileges they experienced within their cultural context. But if you look at the book of 1 Corinthians, what you discover is that there was all sorts of jealousy happening around the particular spiritual gifts that some people were given, that some people's spiritual gifts were, were more apparent, more visible, more upfront while other people's spiritual gifts were more hidden, and even things like that were creating all kinds of division within the context of the church. Anytime there are things that create relational, relational destruction and relational breakdown between people, especially within the context of the body, it is evidence of something truly evil. But there is something untoward going on in the hearts of men. But then he doesn't even end there. He says this in verse 21. He begins to speak of sins of excess, And the two that he mentions are drunkenness and orgies. Drunkenness is obvious to us. It's drinking to the point of losing control, to the point where your inhibitions are down, where you begin to engage in behaviors or speech or attitudes that you otherwise, in a sober state, would not engage. And then he mentions orgies, which seems out of place for us in our modern understanding of that word. But in the original language, what that word literally meant was just wild parties. The sort of things that people do to distract themselves from the difficulties of their lives, trying to find some level of happiness, some level of meaning, some level of escape in the presence of other people, in the parties with other people. And he ends with this juncture term in verse 21, and things like these. And at least in my mind, Paul includes this because he's saying, if I didn't mention your sin in this list, you're not off the hook. Anything that's like this falls into this final category. Now, he goes through this litany of sins, and it's uncomfortable for us to read, and it's a lengthy list in and of itself. It's certainly not, uh, it's certainly not entire in its mentioning because he adds that things like these. But then notice the warning that he gives at the end of verse 21. I warn you, as I warned you before, when I was with you in Galatia, when I was with you preaching to you and, and caring for you and ministering to you, I'm warning you now, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, as we hear that, there's something about it that makes us stiffen up a little bit. It makes us uncomfortable to hear that, and it should make us a bit uncomfortable. I think this language is meant to be provocative and a little bit shocking for us. But lest we misunderstand what he's saying in this text, I think we need to understand the original language here. I think this is one of those areas where understanding the Greek language can actually be of help to us. Because on initial blush, when we read this, our mind immediately goes to, well, wait a minute. I've been guilty of at least one of those sins and probably more. 
There's things on that list that I, as a Christian, as a believer in Jesus Christ, have been guilty of. Does that mean I'm no longer headed toward heaven? Does that mean I've lost my salvation? Does that mean I'm not going to inherit the kingdom? That I'm not going to have an eternal home in heaven? And therefore, we need to understand what's happening. So I want to point your attention to those words. I warned you before that those who do such things, that phrase, do such things in your Bible, comes from the Greek word presontes. Presontes literally means habitual. He's talking here about the manner of your lifestyle. If your lifestyle is defined by those sorts of sins, if you are able to willingly, consistently, unrepentantly continue in that sin against God without conviction for having done so, it may be an indication that you don't actually know Christ. He's not talking about failures as a believer. He's not talking about missteps and mistakes. He's not talking about even moments of willful sin. He's talking about the idea that you can continually, unapologetically, unrepentantly continue on in sin. And he's saying, if that's you, you may not know Christ. And if that's true of you, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And that is understandably a terrifying notion. So remember the context of this passage. He's explaining the beauty and the wonder and the freedom of life in the Spirit to people who are trying to earn their own salvation. But what he's saying to them is, if you're trying to earn your own salvation and you're guilty of these sins, you're not trusting in Jesus Christ you're not indwelled by the Holy Spirit, if you're able to live for yourself, by your own power, to your own ends, without the Holy Spirit convicting and challenging you, it may be an indication that you don't know Christ at all. Because a person who is able to do all of that without Holy Spirit conviction demonstrates that they are actually spiritually dead, not spiritually alive. They are unresponsive to the Spirit of Christ because they don't know Christ. And if that's you today where you're hearing that list and you're going, I'm able to live however I want and do whatever I want and I'm never bothered by any of it, now is the moment to be bothered. And the invitation to you from this text this morning is to find life in Christ. To find salvation in Him. To find freedom in Him. To, to receive His free gift of salvation. To see the beauty and the wonder of what it is that Jesus Christ does for you and in you because of His work on the cross and because of His resurrection. To receive life, the indwelling of the Spirit, an eternal home with Jesus Christ. But what about the rest of us? What about Christians in this room who hear this verse and immediately your mind jumps to the sins that you consistently struggle with? And that could be everything from quick tempers to overindulging in alcohol to pornography to envy. And we begin to wonder, does my struggle with sin mean that I'm actually not a Christian? And the implicit assurance of this text is that those who know Jesus Christ and are thus indwelled by the Holy Spirit will experience conviction. See, struggling is a sign of life. And as a Christian, when you are struggling with sin, as difficult and as painful 
as challenging and even doubt-inducing as it may be, if you are actively struggling in your life with sin, meaning when you do the things that you know you ought not do, you feel that pang of conviction and you go, I know this isn't how I should be living and I know Christ died for that sin and I don't want to be living for these things that I'm actively struggling with. Understand that part of the assurance, part of the comfort even that's found in that moment of conviction is that a struggle is an indication of life. People who are spiritually dead don't struggle with sin. They indulge it. It's not a struggle at all. It's not a fight internally at all. There's nothing in their spirit, nothing in their soul that wants to live differently because it's all they're living for. Because they are spiritually dead, given over to the works of the flesh. No, it's when you're given over and not fighting that you ought to be concerned. If the Holy Spirit of God indwells you, you can be sure that he'll convict you of sin. In other words, and I want you to hear this, if you are concerned with or bothered by having sinned against God, it's an indication that the Holy Spirit is working in you. It's evidence of your sonship or your daughterhood. The Holy Spirit's conviction of sin is a mark of your adoption. And to say it differently, if you were not concerned with having sinned against God, you should be most concerned that you don't know him. And if you are concerned with having sinned against God, be comforted that those whom God loves, he disciplines. See, ultimately what Paul is getting after in this text is the truth that in order to live a fulfilled and joyous life, we needed something more powerful than the law. We needed not another external constraint, but we needed an internal infusion of life. We needed something that comes only through the Holy Spirit's power and presence in our lives. It's what led the Apostle Paul to write about this same idea in Romans chapter 8, verse 5, where he says this, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So when the Holy Spirit indwells believers, the change you need is granted in a manner beyond what you could have imagined. The life that the Holy Spirit imparts in the believer is what stirs your affections and focuses your mind on the things of the Spirit. It's what we said today in the confession of faith where we said that one of the things that the Holy Spirit does is convict us, comfort us, guide us. He gives us spiritual gifts. Listen, and the desire to obey God. Do you understand that the mere desire to obey God is not something you can muster? People who are fleshly, people who don't know Jesus Christ, might have all kinds of reasons for trying to obey the law of God. They might think that it makes them good moral people. They might think that it makes them good citizens of society. They might even think that it's how they earn their favor with God. But implicit in all of those things is a threat. And the threat is, if I don't live the right way, people are going to think poorly of me. People are going to reject me. I'm going to have a miserable life or God is going to reject me. And threats do not make for good motivations in spiritual lives. Guilt is not a good motivator. Guilt can only take you so far. And ultimately, guilt inherently does nothing to glorify God because it means that you are operating under threat rather than out of love. But if what we said in the confession of faith is true, and if what Romans chapter 8 verse 5 is said is true, if the mere desire to even obey God comes from God, 
then in the moments where you fail, and in the moments where you confess, and in the moments where you desire to obey, all of those things work to give comfort to your heart that you actually know Christ. And this work of the Holy Spirit in your life is not some new power that the Christian needs to summon or work up. It is the ordinary, everyday, supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. It is played out through extraordinary transformation over time in the life of the believer. See, these Galatians had far less biblical knowledge than we did. They had no cultural Christianity surrounding them. They had no Christian history to look back on. And yet Paul, in this text, never suggests that they were lacking anything that they needed for the Christian life. He says instead that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer equips and strengthens them for everything they need, including the fulfillment and the meeting that they all desired. And God does all of that through the freedom that he provides. So last week, Dave defined freedom this way. Freedom is the God-given ability and desire to live according to the Spirit, to reject sin's demands on us, so that we may live for God and glorify him and love him with all of our heart and soul and strength. That is freedom. Freedom from the law freedom from sin. You have been made free to live in the Spirit. And now Paul begins to describe what that looks like. Verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And Paul intentionally here communicates these attributes as being the fruit of the Spirit. And the words fruit and spirit are both operative and intentional here. Because many people approach these tributes as if they're a to-do list. So I look down this and I go, "Mm, I'm pretty good at patience. I'm not so good at kindness, so I need to work on kindness. I'm going to work, that's going to be my effort this week. And then we're going to move on to gentleness after that. Once I get kindness down, then we're going to move on to gentleness. And what people do is they turn the fruit of the Spirit into another law. They've entirely missed the point that this is something that is born out in you by the Holy Spirit working miraculously in your heart in concert with your soul through the power that comes only through God through the revelation of his word. Do you understand that you are just as dependent on the Holy Spirit for sanctification as you are for his justification? And that's not typically how we think of it. Typically what we do is we view justification as God's work. Well, it's God's work to bring me into the family of God, but then it's my work to grow myself in that family. As if God's work is done and now yours begins. No, it is his work from beginning to end. It is him who calls and justifies and sanctifies and glorifies. He begins the work. He brings it to completion, which means as you grow in Jesus Christ, as you grow in knowledge of him, as your life transforms because of an understanding of who he is, he gets all the credit and all the glory for that too. None of it is your own strength. None of it. And even to the extent that other people can look at your life and see changes in you or see God use you, 
All of that is, is evidence to what the Holy Spirit's doing in you. That the Holy Spirit is as central in your sanctification as he is in your justification. But when we lose sight of that, what people begin to do is treat this like a to-do list. And in their desire to reflect the fruit of the Spirit, they go, okay, I'm going to work on this. I'm going to stop doing that. I'm going to start doing these things. And it's like taking wax fruit and tying it to a tree and pretending that you have life. That doesn't accomplish anything. Because the point of the fruit of the Spirit is not to have the outward appearance of health, but to have the internal reality of life. And the internal reality of life always leads to fruit, yes, but it doesn't start with the fruit. For these attributes to be fruit, they must be produced by the life of the vine. This is the same illustration that Jesus himself uses in John chapter 15 where he says this, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. That's your justification. That's your identity. That's the new you, the new life in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit indwelling, forgiveness, acceptance, adoption, and justification of the Holy Spirit. So then, what do we do? Verse 4, abide in me. What does a branch do in order to produce fruit? It abides in the vine. That's it. It doesn't have to focus really hard and work really hard to make fruit happen. It is a vessel through which the life of the vine comes and produces fruit. Abide in me, says Jesus, verse 4 of John chapter 15, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. No strength, no ability, no power to create anything that actually has life apart from Christ. And notice then how he describes this fruit. He describes it in the singular, which is important because when the Holy Spirit indwells a believer, he works from the inside out, transforming our very character. He doesn't just give us joy and peace, for instance, but then leave us alone to figure out patience. No, holistically, he changes us. He moves in us. He brings things about. He works holistically to change and redeem every part of who we are. And just to be clear, this doesn't mean that overnight, suddenly, you'll demonstrate all of these aspects perfectly. Now, this is a lifelong process that doesn't reach its completion until we are with Christ in glory. But what he's saying is that that he begins the work of transformation and it begins to bear itself out in every aspect of our life. So how do we actually see this working? Because the truth is, if you're an impatient person, it is a very difficult thing to do to become patient. Well, diagnostically, the way that we see this is, can you look back in your life over the last month, year, five years, ten years, and see any movement? 
can you see a trajectory? Not to say that there aren't moments or even seasons of failure, but can you see a movement in your life? Is there an increased desire to be with God, to spend time with Him, to know His Word? Is there an increased desire to obey, driven by the Holy Spirit in your life? Is there an increased distaste for sin? Not saying that you don't sin and that you don't struggle and that you don't fail, but, but is there an increased desire to know Him better and run from the things for which Christ had to die? See, the truth is that all the momentary pleasures that the flesh provides are just cheap imitations of the real thing. Where the flesh can only produce lust and regret, the Spirit bears the fruit of true, confident, selfless love. Where the flesh produces dissensions and anger, the Spirit provides peace and patience and kindness. Where the flesh kindles violence and anger, the Spirit produces tranquility and gentleness. Where the flesh has to resort to the distractions of drunkenness and parties, the Spirit brings the calm of true self-control and temperance. And where the flesh leans on diversions that produce fleeting happiness, the Spirit produces joy that is not dependent on circumstance. See, all the flesh can do is produce cheap imitations that ultimately lead to death. But the Spirit and its life produces lasting fruit. Now notice how Paul closes out this section, verse 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh, past tense, with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. What Paul's talking about here is, in essence, a co-crucifixion. That is, Jesus Christ was nailed onto the cross to pay for your sin. He paid for all of your sin, past, present, and future. That when when you are saved by Jesus Christ, if you're here and a believer in him, it's as if that old person, that old flesh, that old you, that was spiritually unresponsive to God, was nailed up with Christ on the cross. Those who belong to Christ Jesus, and if you are here and a believer in him, having been saved by his grace through faith, you are a believer in him. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. In other words, sin no longer has sway and power in your life the way it once did. Sin, sin still exists, sin still persists, sin still tempts, and we still sin. But it does not have the final say because it was paid for once and for all. And because of that, Paul says, if your new life, verse 25, came by the Spirit, then you can trust him to lead you in living that life. 
several years ago, I came across this quote from Charles Spurgeon, and I wrote it down and read back through it on occasion because I find it very helpful because it's so reflective of my own spiritual walk. Spurgeon, in one of his volumes, wrote this, when I thought God was hard, I found it easy to sin. But when I found God so kind, so good, so overflowing with compassion, I smote upon my breast to think that I could have ever rebelled against one who loved me so and sought my good. In other words, if sin is a constant struggle and a constant cycle of failure for you, one of the places that you can start in addressing your own spiritual life is to ask the question, how do you view God? Do you view him as a hard, angry taskmaster? Distant and far away, waiting to bring down wrath the moment that you step out of line. Do you find him difficult and angry? Have you imposed your earthly view of who God is on top of who God has declared that he is? Because when you begin to experience firsthand, when you begin to see his goodness and his grace and his gentleness toward you, when you begin to experience his love toward you, it changes your attitude toward sin. As you've heard Dave and myself say on various occasions, and I don't know to whom this is originally attributed, I don't want to live for the things that Christ had to die for. He loved me that much. And so I don't want to live for those things anymore. I don't want that to be the marker of my life anymore. When I thought God was hard, that's when it was easy to sin. When I found him so good, so loving, so kind, that's the moment when it became hard to sin. So here's the operative question for us. How do we actually grow in these things through the Spirit? How does that actually come about? Okay, so you've told me that I can't just will fruit into my life, that I can't just make this happen, that I can't focus really hard and produce it through my own to-do list. So how then is this fruit of the Spirit actually brought about and born into my life? And I would draw your attention to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, where the Apostle Paul writes this. And notice the connection to the Holy Spirit in this text. Now the Lord is the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is God, three in one, right? The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are God. The Lord is the Spirit, and the Spirit is the Lord. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, what does that next phrase say, verse 17? There is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. What transforms my life, what brings about fruit, what, what carries me from the sinful temptation that used to mark my life as one who did not follow and did not love God to now a son who desires however imperfectly, to be obedient, beholding God. 
through the freedom offered by the Holy Spirit, I get to, with unveiled face, experience the presence of God in my life, that the Holy Spirit of God himself, pre-eternal, pre-existent with the Father and the Son, is now with me. He now indwells me. And through the Holy Spirit, it's as if I am able to look directly into the face of God. And in looking into the face of God, my heart agrees with the statement of Charles Spurgeon that I find him to be so good and so kind and so overflowing with compassion that I am now driven to obey and to love him. Because when I experience the perfect love of the Father through the Spirit, I am now made free I am free to extend that love to others, whether or not they deserve it. I'm free to serve and love others. I no longer have to use others. In other words, Paul wants us to see the fact that freedom is found in living the Christian life by the power of the gospel through the life of the Spirit. Because once I know that the judge of all the earth has declared me innocent by the blood of Jesus Christ, what turmoil is there left to be experienced? And to the extent that I suffer and experience turmoil physically in this world, I do so realizing that the Spirit of God is with me. And that everything I experience ultimately brings about His glory and my joy even in ways that I may not understand in this life. So brother and sister, be be encouraged. The fruit of the Spirit that ought to define the Christian life is not some unattainable, unattainable checklist put before you to remind you of your failures. But it is a description of a life that is so desirable and so beautiful that nothing short of the presence of the Creator God Himself in your life could bring it about. But that God is so good that He is present with you to bring it about. It takes that much power and that much generosity and that much care, and that is what the Holy Spirit delivers. So trust today, brother and sister, not on your own strength, but beholding with unveiled face the glory of God, to trust him more and more and in trusting him and in seeing him to see the fruit of the spirit born out in your life. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for this text and I thank you that even though it is so familiar, most likely to to many, if not all of us, that there is so much depth and truth in the words that we read. And God, I thank you that in none of this did you leave us alone, that in all of it, you pointed us to yourself and you gave us your spirit by whom we are able to pray, in whom we feel conviction, in whom we are given comfort, and by whom we are given a desire to obey in a way that we may never have had a desire to obey before. So God, I pray that you would bring these things to bear in our lives in ways that are unmistakably you. Where we wouldn't be able to ascribe the progress and the development and the desire that we now feel in you to anything other than your presence in our lives. And God, to those in this room that may not know you, 
who are able to continue on unrepentantly, unconfessed, in a sin that, that ought not mark their lives, would today be the day where they realize, perhaps for the first time, the love and the generosity and the care with which you approach them, giving your own son to die on the cross, to raise from the dead, to give them new life, and to release them from the bondage of sin and the law. And so, God, in all these things, we pray that you would make much of yourself. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.